This episode has been recorded by Janine Preston for Life is a Beach. Joe was telling us last week about his journey from the start to the finish of um, his career, but we never got to finish. We started when he became, when he was zero, uh, back in the early 70s, late 60s, um, when he started his career as a builder and ended up retiring and is now with me in the studio as a retiree. So just to let you guys know that entrepreneurs do in fact retire. They do have an opportunity to retire. They do have an opportunity to put their feet up and enjoy their great-grandchildren, which I know he has a great-grandson who just brings such joy to his life. Um, one of the good things about small about this show is we talk about small business and, of course, big dreams. And it's hashtag small startups, big dreams. And it's all about entrepreneurs. And today's show is about particularly that. We're talking to Joe. Joe, but we have to go back a little. So let's go right back to when you met your wife. How's that? Oh, good morning, Janine, and thank you for having me. Um, I met Sheila way back in 1966 <clears throat> out in Sasselberg. She was visiting her grandma, and uh, it so happened that uh, there was a wedding in that, uh, on that weekend. I, was in, I went to the wedding because the person who was getting married was my colleague at work, and she, out of uh, curiosity of watching weddings, she popped in and uh, my eye caught her. Ah, uh, <laughs> not she didn't catch you caught her eye. My eye caught her. Ah, ah. while she was uh, <laughs> trying to watch the bride and the bridegroom, I saw and I, my eye just stayed on her and I said, That one. And uh, it ended up uh, until today. And how old were you when you met? I think when we met, I was 22. 22, 23, thereabouts. So 22, 23 is a good age, huh? Yeah. <laughs> and you got married how long afterwards? Um, we got married in 1970. You got married in 1970? And how old were you then? Uh, I think then I was around 26, if I'm not... If my calculations are still right. <laughs> if your calculations are correct. Um... But now tell me something. Well, how long was it before you decided to have kids? Yeah, uh, we, we got our first kid in 1969. Uh, we slipped up. I was going to say, oops. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? They're all grown up. It gave you an opportunity. You talked about becoming a counsellor. Yes, I, I became a counsellor by chance, really. And uh, what was happening was... Uh, Last time I told you the escapades I had with the... With those guys staying with over? Those guys that <gasps> and, and they stayed with you for almost <clears throat> a week while you were selling newspapers? Correct. And uh, thereafter, when these guys left, then uh, I noticed, in fact, Sheila noticed that someone was watching the house. And uh, it started from there, the house being watched. And uh, from there, the special branch got onto me. The special branch? You know the special branch? Yes. The special they were the branch. specially mean ones. Those were the, pol the police that would uh, follow you up and say you are a terrorist or you are a communist or 
you are a member of the ANC, member of whatever political party which was banned. Now those are the people that uh, they kind of chased me around and uh, now I was active in church, you know, with all the youth and what have you. <clears throat> and uh, I realized uh, these people were just on my case. So 1977, when the then government introduced the community councils, I saw that as a chance to join the community councils. And uh, then they started chasing after me. Then I went to the then administration board director, by the name of Knutze, if I remember well. And I said to him, listen, uh, the government has established a community council and uh, I have decided to join and become a councillor. Now here are, the, here are the police chasing me and they say I am a troublemaker and what have you. Joe, you don't look like a troublemaker. <laughs> you look like a granddad. <laughs> you look like a granddad. Uh, at the time, then... Uh, <clears throat> After I'd spoken that, I mean, I had reported now, and uh, the apartheid, uh, you know, authorities were happy that I had joined into their policy. So as a councillor, I, I sort of got a sanctuary, if you want to call it that. I, the director then called the minister, then Klasu called me Melder, I think. He said, listen, get your boys off my councillors. These people, this, this guy is a councillor for Zambela. This is his ward and what have you and what have you and what have you. And ever since, they got off my, off my case. That is just, that is a scary moment. I'm sure it was for you as well. It's so nice to have him back in the studio and it's taken us back in time to that time when for half the world, the world is really a scary place and for the, for the other half, it wasn't as scary. Yeah, after, after this, uh, after I had reported to the director of the then Val Triangle, uh, um, then <clears throat> the hounding stopped because they said, look, this guy is towing the line, he's doing what we want and whatever. How can you say he's a, a communist, you know? I mean, I dodged under that and I was conveniently um, off the radar. And you were still obviously in the Val area I was still point. in the Val. I was working for the Heaven Foundation at the time. Uh, so you were still, uh, so you, were, you had a regular I was, job? Yeah, I, was, uh, I had a regular job and I was a part-time Councillor, <clears throat> but I would be released. You know, each time there's a meeting, I go to the meeting. My company would say, "Go," and that's it. And what was your role as a councillor? In other words, in that particular time period, your hands were obviously tied, pretty much not like it is at the moment. But in those days, I'm sure you were you were almost told what to do. Uh, the the truth is. Uh, I was told, as I was part of the ones that were told, because uh, the community councils were meant to serve uh, black, what they called black municipalities in theory, and uh, there was 
at that time uh, we had municipalities which were white. You had white councillors that decided on the fate of that particular town. So uh, the introduction of community councils was really a parallel um, wagon, if you want to call it that. So it was more, um, you were a messenger, would you see yourself as they gave you a message to distribute and you distributed the message because you were respected in your community? Is that kind of how it was? No, they, what, what they were doing is they wanted us to run our affairs, black affairs for black people. Okay. Like uh, before then they had uh, advisory councils where whites would sit and they would get people in the township, you know, prominent people who'd come and sit with them and uh, advise them on what black people wanted and stuff like that. So from advisory councils came the community councils. But I must say, in the community councils, I learned quite a bit because what they were doing is they were duplicating precisely what the municipalities were doing. As a councillor, you came to know that, you know, to arrive at the budget, how they arrived at that budget. You know, there's a lot of civic, civic matters that I learned, which I didn't know, which unfortunately the current councillors have missed out on. That's why they're messing up like this. And they've never learned from people like yourself who were so involved. Yeah. And all they have to do is turn around and exactly. talk to you. Because there would be minutes and you'd read the minutes, you'd be able to go back and say, no, this is not on, I didn't say that. You know, put up your story and stuff like that. So, and whilst we were doing that, we are doing that on comparison with what the white councils were doing. And like I'm saying, uh, they said they, this was a parallel wagon and uh, that was what they were doing because they had also developed the, the, the homelands to say the homelands must run black affairs of people in the, in the homelands and we in urban areas would be able to run black affairs for our black people who were then temporary sojourners in the townships. Okay, that's interesting. And, and I think a lot of the way that they are running now is because they don't connect to their communities, be they white yeah. or black or colored, it's, it really doesn't matter. They need to connect with their community. There, They're serving a community. There I learned quite a bit of tricks. I mean, this Knutze guy would teach us, you know, precisely just how they build the townships. You know, I mean, you'd think government would give money from Pretoria. Yes, they did. But in the most, the townships were built by ourselves without us knowing. What the, the, the chief director would do is he would uh, get his team together, his technical team, quantity surveyors, you know, your architects and uh, all your technical was names them together and say, listen guys, we want to put up a township of 5,000 houses. And one would come up with a drawing and say, there's the four-room house, uh, basic thing, there's a toilet, and this is how the service are. And they would work that out, come up with a figure, and once they have a figure to say, maybe this is going to cost 20 million, then 
the municipality, the, 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 the then director of what's name would go to the building society and say to the building society, we want to borrow money to build, we want to borrow 20 million from you over 20 years. Now this is what the current uh, crop is not doing. Borrow 20 million, take the 20 million, they break it up into 5,000 pieces to say each house will contribute how much towards that loan, inclusive of interest. And onto that they would build in uh, their administration fee, they would build in their leisure time and stuff like that. And at the end of the day, each of the 5,000 houses would be given or would be told that rent to stay in that four-roomed house was going to cost you three rent. Now the three rent had already been broken down. Down already completely. into that. So we didn't know. We just know that you're going to rent a house. Absolutely. And, and you didn't rent know that you are paying back a loan. Correct. Okay. Now these are the things that I learned whilst I was a counsellor. Wow. We're going to listen to some music and, and when we come back we're going to listen to a bit more about Joe's journey. And it's certainly interesting to hear and I hope there are some counsellors listening who are currently in council and can start to learn that there are people in the community that can certainly learn, that have already learned those lessons and all you have to do is listen to them. And that's certainly what we're learning, what, we, what we're doing here. Hi, it says, good morning. How did Mr. Chibangu know when to retire from business? Because as you know, this is the small startup, big dream show. We talk about entrepreneurship and we're on Joe's journey from zero to retirement. So tell me, when did you know when to retire? You always get indicators. With the current crop of people that are running the administration, we had our corona, if you want to call it that. And the corona there is bribery, corruption. As soon as those came in, I knew it was time for me to go. And at what age did you retire? 2015. 2015, how old was I then? <laughs> I think only you would know the answer to that. <laughs> but um, in retire, I've been in retirement for the past four or five years. Five years. And how old are you now, Joe? Uh, on the 24th of April, I'll be 76. So you, you retired after you were 70. That's pretty yeah. good innings. Mm -hmm. and, and now you haven't retired because now you're doing Bitcoin. But yeah. we'll chat about oh, that a bit yes. later because oh, yeah. you're still busy on your journey. Oh, right. I mean, that's just. I, I had another request from uh, a reader who said, Hello, I read that you are an activist. Uh, what did you do to help out as we are in Human Rights Month? Also, how did you feel about the changes that you fought for today? So I think we answered that first question. He already helped out by, by putting um, two boys into his home while he was doing newspapers. And I think the only question we need to ask you is how do you feel about the changes that you fought for today? Frustration. Because uh, it looks like people that are in charge have lost the cause. Um, I would say 25, 26 years into democracy, uh, people have decided, I don't know whether it's because 
they've seen money at a distance, now they have to administer it. So the, the money has become so shiny that it goes into their pockets. And that's quite sad, because as you say, the, the, the cause that they fought for was equality and democracy. Exactly. And it was building a world together. And it seems that the world together is... There was a, there was a book by George Bernard Shaw, I don't know if you know it, it's called Bernard. Animal... Uh, it was called um, George Bernard Shaw, but it was about the animals um, who were living on this farm. Or animal farm. Animal farm, that's correct. Animal, animal and they animal. took over the farm. Yes. Oh, yeah. And then before long, the pigs had moved into the house and they decided that some animals were more equal than others. Exactly. I've read that book, I know. <laughs> and that, that's pretty much that's exactly where, we, where we are now. That's where we are now. And, well, and that's sad because you, you went to be a counselor. Very sad. <clears throat> To, to make sure that, that people were looked after and that things were done right. Exactly. And, and to have that what was done right to now be done wrong. Exactly. <clears throat> and what happened was that when the new dispensation came, the first thing that happened, and that was a major blunder, and that's, that was the indication that people were in for it for themselves. It was a question of um, whatever they see, whatever was there that apartheid had left was no good. So everything had to be taken away and start Again. afresh. Now, people that were starting afresh had no experience of what they were doing at all. Hence, what they did was to start taking the very people that were doing the job and privatize and use them as consultants. I would sit here as if I'm running this office and a person who used to run the office would be having a table at the corner. He would be paid a salary. He'd been paid all his money and a pension for the, for the previous job he was doing uh, under apartheid. Now he'll be doing the job for me. Okay. Since that time, I mean, our people knew nothing, so they had to learn. And most of them, to them, being in offices was status. And like I'm saying, people became, got into it for... For, for all the wrong reasons. Yeah. And I think that there wasn't a legacy that Nelson Mandela left us. Uh, his legacy was, let's take this forward together and make it work together. It yeah. wasn't really about, well, now we'll just have a reverse racism and turn it the other way around, so now we've got <clears> reverse apartheid as opposed to saying, let's do this together, because that was the path he had chosen to take. If we, if, if we had followed that, all that had to happen was just to start uh, merging, you know? The old the, way, the, the new way, way, and make and it one way. And make it one. And there you'd be able to, you know, to break, to break even. And would you consider being a counsellor today if you were given the opportunity? No, I wouldn't. So you were glad you did it when you did, because you learnt an enormous amount. Judging by what you said earlier, you, what you had learnt, you wouldn't have learnt anywhere else. I wouldn't have. I learnt and I don't regret what I learnt. And I hope and I wished that the counsellors today had learnt what we learnt then. Because apartheid at the time, for themselves, it was a perfect system. And if we had taken that system and implemented it, this country would be very far. We'd be quite far ahead. Of course. What, just to add, uh, what, what, uh, what uh, 
this guy couldn't have done uh, whilst we were whilst we were in the community council. He sent, I think, some six, if not eight persons, I can't recall the numbers, who had matriculated. He sent them to the to University of the North, Terflo, to go and study administration. Oh my goodness. And that got paid for by the rental money and what have you. Those people went there to learn the tricks. But when um, democracy came in, those very people with those certificates, because of politics, were made clerks. They were chased away. They were, all people that were brought in were brought in for the wrong reasons. You had to be politically connected. Oh so we lost everything. You lost all that knowledge. All that knowledge. That knowledge was, and and it's, it's knowledge you 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 gained as well, and you know that they gained very similar knowledge. Oh, yes. First mistake the ANC did <clears throat> was to demolish the township uh, offices, administration offices. Took everybody who was there and crowded them at the town hall. But that doesn't make sense because it takes doesn't. them away from their people. Precisely. Because that person who could come and talk to their council and say, I have this problem, yeah. they now suddenly have to catch a number of taxis or go and find that person. And generally oh, yes. with call centers, you cannot speak to a person. You speak to a phone. And, <laughs> and, the, and the thing is, the councillors today, I, like I say, you know, people that got in through politics, they have no clue of what administration is. And immediately they did that. They demolished the township uh, administrative office's income. Oh there was goodness. no income anymore from the local people. And the local people knew that, oh no, we're no more paying rent, so why should we pay rent? Then it became the burden of the state. So it went from being somebody who was self-sustaining to somebody who became a burden. A burden. And even today, if you look at it, look at your television today. Um, the president announces we are going to give uh, a relief fund of 350. See the queues that are there. People have just become dependent because they were taught and they were told to become dependent. And when you are dependent, you are told, no, 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 no. You must have your own business. When you have your business, someone who's uh, an official there says, give me a brown envelope. Bribe me for you to get A. Bribe me to get B. That's so sad. That's, that's why. That's tragic. That, that retired me. <laughs> I can imagine. So that's why you decided it was enough for me. And, and what did you do with your business, Joe? Is your business still I, going? I, before I retired, you know, uh, this is uh, what I'm talking about was in for all jobs that are government related. Because government is the major employer uh, in construction and what a okay. number of things. But in my field of construction, I still, I had my connections with the private sector. I had engine, mobile at the time. 
And that's when you built garages? That's when I built garages. Did you remain building garages until you retired, or did you change from garages back into, ho into housing? Uh, I, 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 did all, I did both. You know, I would have a job to build a garage at a certain place. I'd have a job to build houses. I would have building society houses or today. In today's terms, I would have uh, loans that are advanced by, by the banks. And tell me something, when you started as a building company, for those of you who listened last week, we talked about Joe's building company. And, and one of the things that I asked him was, he, he, he became part of the building community. But did they have something like the Master, I think it's called the Master Builders Association? Yes. I may be wrong. Yeah, no. But did you belong to that when you were part of it? Did they accept you being a black man um, before, or was it only recently that you applied? Um, we, on our own, had uh, what we called, um, we had our local builders association, black, and we had a provincial uh, builders association. We called the Transvaal Builders Association, and then we had uh, our national uh, builders association. And together we matched with, but not matched, but we worked together with uh, the Master Builders Association. Because from the Master Builders Association, where the, you, you, you'd find a lot of those people in there were professionals, people that had degrees in um, being quantity surveyors, yeah. being architects, being engineers. Now, some of us, in the, 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 the black builders were people that picked up the trade by experience. When I wanted to, <clears throat> when I wanted to go to, to tech, you know, to to the tech, the tech that was nearby, and I was being paid for by my company then, uh, was the Val Triangle um, uh, Technicon. So they had no issues with you becoming part of an association, yet they wouldn't allow you to go to the Technicon. That was quite interesting. Uh, yeah, the, the, look, the, the, the Technicon was meant for whites. There were Technicons that were established thereafter in the homelands for black people. Now, where would you consider, where was the homelands as such? What, what sort of areas were considered a homeland? Uh, what they call Limpopo today, what they call KwaZulu Natal today, in in the Free State, uh, in the Northwest, also somewhere near Mafia. And yes, you do retire after the, the, there's a retirement after your small business. Am I right, Joe? You're right. And and he made the decision when he saw the political landscape changing. He decided that was time for him to go, and and he retired and he now spends time with his family. And um, we're going to chat to him a little bit later about what he's actually doing when he's retired. Because you know what, there's an, a thing about an entrepreneur is they're serial entrepreneurs. So Joe, let's, let's just chat a little bit about, you were talking about scrap metal during the break. Is that also, was that one of your side hustles as well? Yes. Uh, I did scrap metal when I was 
I did. I started it part time when I was in construction, and uh, because I had bought a site, and this site I had, I was hoping to develop. Um, I had applied to the oil companies for them to put up a garage, but um, because of com all sorts of things, it didn't materialize. So I ended up with this site which was now in my hands and I asked myself what do I do with it and the idea came because I have my connections make no mistake as a hustler you learn all kind of languages <laughs> I'm sure you do <laughs> my Africans is perfect I spoke to African speaking people because most of them are into scrap metals I said how do you do it what is it and when they showed me, when they opened up, I noticed, oh, scrap metal, a scrap yard or scrap metal, to me, is like you saying, uh, when you eat pork, you don't, uh, on the table you don't say it's pork, you say it's bacon. Yet it comes <laughs> from a pig, and when you look at the pig, a pig is dirty, it's all sorts of things. That's scrap yard. Scrap out of those rusted tins, rusted irons, the money that comes out of there is enormous. It's, I made good money out of scrap. But the only thing is, when I went to these people that melt. The melting, yeah, the melting company. I said, give me a, what's was name? I, I think it's called the foundry? That's right. Yeah, foundry. These guys, they would play true and this, that, this, no, this is not what, hey, you need this, oh, until I gave up. So I had to go through a middleman. Now, when you go through a middleman, a middleman makes his... His cut? A big one for that matter. So the profit that you make at the end of the day, you make good profit, but you don't maximize. This is a problem. Well, I think one of the things with the scrap metal yard is that you just need a yard. You, you, you need like a, almost a, a sort of a caravan to host your office, and the rest is just a yard. So it doesn't need to be perfect. It doesn't need to have somebody to measure it or put it up. It's just a pile of scrap metal. So it makes your costs far less, I'm sure. Oh, yes. But it calls for one thieves. People will come and steal from you like it's going out of fashion. And you couldn't tell if the goods they were bringing you were stolen either. Yeah. The person will come and sell you this. In the evening, you'll jump over the fence and come and pick it up, sell it back to you tomorrow. No! <laughs> oh my goodness! There's, not, there's nothing that you do in life where you just say you're walking in a paradise. No ways. Even the best of people who've got money will tell you having to make money is not an easy journey. No, it's not. You and have and to make, take the risks. The hustling, absolutely. You, make, you take risks. You have to believe in people. and uh, Somewhere you can't do it yourself. You have the idea, but you have to use someone else. And that someone else will look and see your idea is good. And somewhere that someone else is going to reward himself even if you reward it. So um, it's not an easy journey. No, it's definitely, and I'm glad to see that your wife, Sheila, 
um, kept with you on this journey because I'm sure in the morning she'd wake up and say, so Joe, when I go to work today, what do I say you do? Do I say you're a builder? Do I say you're a scrap metal dealer? What do I tell people you do? <laughs> to stop her from asking those questions, <laughs> I said, start your own small business, sell uniform to the schools. And she took that over once she, she finished with the newspapers? And she took that when she finished with the newspapers. That's amazing. So you see, she also had two kind of jobs. So you can't say you've got the corner on, on more than one job. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but Joan, in, in terms of the journey, would you have changed anything? Looking back, what would you have changed about your entrepreneurial journey? If you had an opportunity to have it all over again, what, would, what changes would you make? Uh, the changes that I would wish they would happen would be the opening of doors that got shut in my face. So, for instance, like the Technicon? Like the Technicon story. Yeah. Like the foundries that would lost in me. Like when, uh, when, when I started in construction, uh, they'd look at the color of the skin and they say, but do you know how to do this? You understand, you know, the technicalities. These are the things that I would wish would change. So they, those you would want to have different. But in terms of, of your journey, when you started way back then and you look back and you think, you know, I made the decision to go from here to here, i.e. into construction. You know, it's at that point I should have stayed in promotion because remember you were promoting with Ipitombi mm -hmm. and, um, and, and, and did you ever have any regrets? No. Everything I did, I did. I went all out for it. I enjoyed it. I got past it. As Frank Sinatra said, I did it my way. Precisely. I don't, I, I don't regret. Well, things that I did, I don't regret. And Some you did point, it with the knowledge you had at the time. Yeah, that limited knowledge. And I learned a lot as I progressed. Tell me something. Did you, did you finish school? And I'm just asking, at that time I know schooling was limited for a lot of people. And I just wondered if your education was complete or if you managed to get through life without having completed your education. I matriculated when I started work. I just matriculated and then uh, from there I started studying privately. It's not easy. For me it wasn't very easy. I couldn't finish. Because my concentration was more on than my hands-on things. And what did you study? I studied, um, there was personal management at some stage. And uh, I studied uh, a state agency. A state agency, but then also I look at it. You get involved to sell a house. You have to. How many houses are gonna sell to make a hundred thousand? You understand? I look at all those things and they kind of discouraged me. And that wasn't something you wanted to pursue. No. Because no. when you do something, you want to get paid. You want to move on to the next project. Uh, exactly. <laughs> like uh, that's what I'm doing now. With, with cryptocurrency, the, the platforms I'm, in, I'm, I'm involved in, you know, you know you have a time frame. You invest so much now, over so much, you get so much back. That's it. So you've gone from personal tra trading to online trading. Yeah. Ah, that's a leap of faith. Joe, it's at your age. I'm, I'm really blown away that you were able to make that leap of faith. So, so I want to know a little bit about uh, when you made the leap of faith, how much knowledge did you have for an online product? Because you've gone from a hands-on, let me put a brick on top of a brick, 
to putting your hands into an online platform that you don't have much control over? That one, I got frustrated at some stage, and uh, at some stage I told myself, uh, in life, up until where I am, I've never, I'm not a quit. I never quit. When I chase something, I chase it until I am successful. So you don't have the policy of, if at first I, I don't succeed, I'll try something easier? No, no. You just, if at first I don't succeed, well, damn right, I'm going to get it right eventually. I, <laughs> I, I may not do the same thing, but I'll do something, maybe something similar, or something that's in that line, but at the end of the day, I must come you will You will absolutely definitely Can't get it right. <laughs> we're talking about and he was one of the first people to um, to manage the Ipitombi crowd and that was they were on the top 20 in 1974 in October they reached the Springbok top 20 uh, I was reading a little bit about because that was Margaret Singana yeah. and was Margaret Singana your connection no <clears throat> I was I was dealing directly with her. so just in terms of, of where you came from and that's why I played Ipitombi uh, Mama, Mama Tembe's wedding was because from there to now, now you're doing cryptocurrency. So tell us a little bit about this journey, because this is the serial entrepreneur coming out. You retired from building, you're now doing cryptocurrency. What is cryptocurrency? Uh, <clears throat> if I have to put it in a nutshell, it's, uh, cryptocurrency is the money of the future. It has been, it was designed, or uh, <clears throat> shall I say, the person who founded it was a Japanese person, oh, no, I don't, just forgotten all my details here. But uh, that's money that's, uh, that we're gonna be using in the future. Um, in terms you of talk, cash, you, you mean we're no longer gonna use cash or credit cards, we're gonna use a cryptocurrency? Cryptocurrency is what we're gonna be using. This is, you know, in the form of Bitcoin. Now, Bitcoin now, this is what they've done is, um, they've designed what they call the blockchain. And the blockchain controls all transactions that happen through the Bitcoin. Now the Bitcoin is, um, is digital money. Like when okay. you go and you swipe your card and you get money out, you transact on your phone and you transfer money from your account to your credit card data or something. That's what we're getting into. <clears throat> and when the, the Bitcoin started, it, it was, it had no value at all. It was less than 10 rand if I had to call it that. And uh, what we're using, you know, the pounds, the rands, the dollars, that's what we call uh, fiat currency. Now, the Bitcoin is neither gold, neither is it paper, neither is it, but it's uh, money that you use. If I have a Bitcoin, <clears throat> a Bitcoin account, and you have a Bitcoin account, all that happens is we call those accounts wallets. Now, I will transfer, if I owed you, say, 20 rand, I would transfer the, ten, I was the type in the, 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 the 20 rand in Bitcoin, Bitcoin, 
it to be zero comma zero 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 two something like that. I'll transfer that from my wallet to your wallet, and my debt is settled. Now the good part is, as we speak, there is a Bitcoin um, ATM in Johannesburg, yeah. and at people can pay if you have. A bit, you can pay in bitcoins in, at pick and pay. Pick and pay. Now tell me, uh, from a from a construction worker, and I use the word worker in inverted commas, to a cryptocurrency trader, it's quite a leap of faith. I mean, that's a bridge. It is. That's a huge bridge. Very interesting. Stuff. Was it was it a hard journey? In other words, was it a, a lo- did you lose money along the way? I did. Oh, make no mistake, I did. And, uh, and I hope, Shelley, you're listening, huh? so when he gets <laughs> home, you can smack him because he hasn't told you. <laughs> I lost some money, and uh, I've made some money. That's the encouraging, like I'm saying. Uh, there's, come, there's a couple of cryptocurrency platforms that one can trade on. Bitcoin is one. Bitcoin Vault is another one. They introducing something called electric cash. Now you, there are plans that they sell for an, an, an X amount of money. You buy that, and then every day you get given a portion of the profits that they have was named uh, that have uh, that have accrued. <clears throat> now, but that is that takes you around. In fact, the contract that you buy. You buy a contract uh, in Bitcoin, Bitcoin Vault, electric cash, for a period of 1,100 days. 1,100 days. That's right. But in the process, if you need money, you can withdraw from the, because it's your own money. Oh, wow. Although it takes, it's, it's a long-term thing. So I think what we're going to have to do, Joe, you realize that this journey with me is not over. So now that you've launched into a whole new career as an entrepreneur, you're going to have to spend another day with us. You do know that, don't you? Because we're uh, going to have to talk about this cryptocurrency because clearly it's a journey you've started, but now you've got me interested because I must tell you, I'm, I've, I was in technology for a long time. For 20 years, I was a project manager. I was around when they launched PCs, laptops, desktops. And then when Bitcoin came on, I couldn't get my head around it. I just couldn't understand how virtual money had a value. So I think it's a journey we're going to have to continue. You do know that. I'd be glad to work with you. So we're going to have to tell people who are listening how cryptocurrency works, how Bitcoin works, and take them through that journey because I've got the same problem. I don't understand it. Yeah, a bit of crypto and the different platforms. So I think that's an exciting journey. Because, uh, like I say, Bitcoin... Uh, I mean, no one, no one but no one thought today Bitcoin would be at 800, close to 900,000. No one ever dreamt of that. So if you invested in the beginning, you're doing well. Oh. I'd love to talk to you about things called, they call it a, either a cryptocurrency farm or a, um, or a Bitcoin where they have lots of computers. What do they call them? A Bitcoin farm? Oh, yes. That is now in the um, what they call mining city. Ah, oh, that's it. 
Yeah, it's a crypto. Yeah, a crypto mine, mine yeah. city. <coughs> They've got a farm. It's uh, uh, it's in Poland, also. Uh, uh, they have it there for one reason: electricity in Poland is the cheapest in the whole world. Oh my word! <laughs> <laughs> you mean it's not a cable tied from a uh, robot from the, the electricity uh, pole to the robot? Mm, there they have it. Look, it's I don't know how, but the the farm on which they wash them is they make the electricity right from it's like hydro wash names, but they've got all these container like type of um, containers uh, where they house all these machines that mine the bitcoin. Oh my goodness! And that is where it, it's quite a wash name. It's quite a journey. Okay, and are you thinking, or were you planning before COVID of visiting Poland? Um, I'm no more fond of flying. And oh, Joe, and I bet Sheila's not happy to hear that. I mean, surely uh, your dream of retirement was going on a cruise or yeah, flying um, somewhere. There's the, the things that I, I used to love, like traveling. I used to love that. In between my construction and what have you and what have you. And your scrap metal and your selling newspapers. I, I yeah. used to, in South Africa, I used to travel. You ask Sheila, she's, she doesn't regret not wasting. We travel with all this, um, what do you call them now? I, I was a member of the, what do you call this now? Um, a Toastmaster? <laughs> no, no, not Toastmaster. These ones that handle um, um, wild animals and whatever you, you call The World um, Animal Association? No, no. Um, Nature Conservation? Now I want to say. Sandparks? I forget, <laughs> but I'll, rem I'll remember. It's okay being yeah. over 70, you wild. <laughs> But you, you, you know, it's uh, places that you go to, um, you go and relax there. It's Sand parks where you can visit all their parks. Yeah. Kruger National Park, I'm sure you've been it's many times. Part, part of it, <coughs> I've been to these ones in Natal, North Natal, South Natal, up to the wild coast, in the Garden Route. Oh. So uh, we've traveled. Quite a little. Quite, quite a little a, or quite a lot? Quite a bit. <laughs> so right now, ah, just getting into the car and was, oh, it becomes a nightmare. I'm sure. Yeah. Well, Joe, it's been a pleasure. It's always been a pleasure to talk to you. Um, one of the things I think we need to invite you back to talk to us about cryptocurrency and Bitcoin. So you're going to do a lot of homework. You're going to do a lot of research because when you come on air, you have to help people who don't know me. So you've got to bring all your documents. And we've certainly got space for you on a Tuesday because a Tuesday is when we take a journey with an entrepreneur and we learn about how his product works. Okay. So I think you're definitely back on Tuesday. So those of you who want to listen to more of Joe, Joe's going to teach us and take us on the journey of cryptocurrency. One of the nicest things about Joe Chibangu is he's over 70. So you know what's nice is he doesn't have this young tech speak. We, when, they, when they speak to you, it's like, what do you mean you don't understand what I'm talking about? He gets it. He gets that older people don't always have the immediate knowledge that younger and millennials have. So I'm sure it's going to be quite a journey, Joe. 
and I'm sure I'm going to enjoy it. <laughs> and he was probably one of the most reluctant people on radio I have ever met. We, his daughter and I took a while to convince him to come on radio, and now he's a natural. So having him on there, thank you, Joe, for, for coming through from the van and coming to chat to me, and, and especially about your journey. And I look forward to seeing you on Tuesday. Thank you, man. Tuesday, Wednesday. No, no, Tuesday, because Wednesday's for Living Legends. You're no longer oh, a legend. Okay. Now you're okay. a crypto guy. All right. Now okay. you've got to move from okay. Living Legend to Crypto okay. Guy. Okay. <laughs> so I, you've got to learn, you've got to move into the training channel. Yeah, I, I'll just do a Western, put it in my. In my diary, I still run a diary. Oh, so do I. Do you know that I can't find one? I've been to four stores and I cannot find a diary I can write in because I make my notes in my diary, oh, which is quite sad. Okay, we'll see if we can. I, I, was, I was lucky to get one just when they had down, when they reduced the price. You know, after, after February, I think, they reduced the prices. So uh, I was lucky. Wow, it would be so cool. And the name I think you were looking for was Flexi Club or Holiday Club? Flexi and <laughs> Holiday Club. That's what I was looking for. I've been a member since uh, 1983, I think. Wow. It's been quite a while. I'm just amazed that you found time between all your side hustles I to did. take the family on holiday. But I bet while you were on holiday, you were hustling as well. Oh, yes. Finding new people and... Especially now that you're doing cryptocurrency, the minute you have an opportunity to talk to somebody, the conversation goes off to cryptocurrency. <laughs> Thank you, Joe, Joe Chibangu, um, for taking us through your, your journey from uh, zero to hero. You've been listening to Janine Preston. This has been a podcast for Life is a Beach.